0: Um, We have our next storyteller up, which is Dr. Sarah Marley. Woo! Dr. Sarah Marley recently completed her PhD in dolphin acoustics at Curtin University. Originally from Scotland, she grew up chasing squirrels and watching dolphins, hopefully not at the same time, before embarking on her zoology career and has now been studying marine mammals in Australia for seven years. Tonight, she'll be discussing two of the leading influences on her animal-obsessed life. So everyone, please give a round of applause to Sarah Marley. So, in my house growing up, we had two gods. Their names were David Attenborough and Gerald Durrell. In my talk tonight, I want to give you a brief a reminder of the first, probable uh, probable introduction to the second, and several mini-stories about how these men shaped who I am today. Now, the first one I'm certain you will have heard of. He's a world-famous naturalist, broadcaster, and author, and David Attenborough's television career spans several decades and well over 100 programs. In interviews, he always attributes his natural history interests to fossil collecting as a child growing up in England. And his move into presenting was kind of accidental. Whilst on location, the original presenter of, this, of his first program, Quest, became ill, and Attenborough had to step in at the last moment to take his spot. And that was the start of something wonderful. And I'm sure everyone in this room has, at some point, seen his work. Many of these programs have highlighted the impact of human activities on the natural world, and Attenborough himself is a patron or supporter of many charitable organizations and conservation projects. As a result of these contributions, both science and film, Attenborough received honorary degrees from many universities around the world. And in fact, one of these he received from the University of Aberdeen. And this is my first mini-story, because I was actually an undergraduate student there at the time. Attenborough's degree conferral was accompanied by a public lecture and an interview, and that was when I first saw him in real life. Mmm. <laughs> and he was just as charming and articulate as he appears on TV. At the end of his talk, I loitered around with my sister, my best friend, all of us clutching books of Attenborough's, hoping for an autograph. We joined a surprisingly short queue, and the man himself came out, sat down, smiled, and gestured the first person forward. At that moment, this woman with a headset and a clipboard stomped out on stage, grabbed him by the arm, hoisted him up, said, he will not have time for autographs today, and frog-marched him out of the room but as they passed, his arm brushed mine. <laughs> and although I wish that moment had gone differently, it's still one I'm never going to forget. <laughs> I grew up in an all-female household. It was just me, my mom, and my younger sister. And as you might expect in a household um, fully comprising a woman, it was generally pretty loud. There was always some kind of noise from gossip, complaining, teenage rebellion, and so on. But the nights that David Attenborough was on TV could have heard a pin drop. The ringer on the phone was switched off. We'd put aside all of our current squabbles and spent 60 minutes in silent state of shared awe about the natural world. It was beautiful. The only phrase that remotely comes close to describing our behavior is devotion. That time was sacred. So when I first met my now fiance sitting up at the back of the room, I'm sure you can imagine the chest-clenching disbelief I felt when he told me he'd never heard of David Attenborough. <laughs> and he's a fellow biologist. Ooh, it's a... Okay. <sighs> Honey, I hope you don't get lynched. <laughs> now, in his defense, I should probably explain that my partner's French. So, whilst I was growing up in Scotland on a diet of Attenborough, his natural history meets were being met by Jacques Cousteau. Ah, okay. <laughs> now, you'll remember that traditionally in my family, Attenborough viewing is a very serious business. You will not leave the viewing unless absolutely necessary. If you need to go to the bathroom during an ad break, you run. If you need to make a very British cup of tea at half time, but you hear the episode resuming, you cast your teabag aside and sprint through from the kitchen, abandoning all attempts at refreshment. Because Attenborough is more important. And that's just how it is, and how it should be. So imagine my absolute horror. When mid-episode, my partner stands up and goes to do the dishes. <laughs> I looked at him and uttered but disbelief. What are you doing? I demanded. Uh, doing the dishes? He said, fully unaware of the looming storm. It's fine, I can still hear it from here, he says, clattering away amidst pa- plates and cutlery. And whilst I'm grateful to have found a man who takes part in household chores, <laughs> I do find it very hard to believe that someone could not share my reverential devotion for Attenborough. Now, my other science hero, and the one I actually really want to talk to you about tonight, I've come to accept that he doesn't quite have the cult following that he deserves. So a quick show of hands. Before tonight, how many of you had heard of Gerald Durrell? Okay, maybe like seven hands in a room of 65, 70 people. Not great, but actually better than I expected. So Durrell was a British naturalist, zookeeper, conservationist, author, and television presenter. Quite a similar lineup to Attenborough. But where Sir David focused the majority of his efforts on science communication, Darrell was devoting his to conservation. He was the driving force behind the marriage between zoos and conservation, the idea that using captive breeding of endangered species could be an aid to their survival. But let me go back to the beginning. Born in India in 1925, Darrell spent several years in England before moving to the Greek island of Corfu with his widowed mother and three older siblings. And the five years that he spent on the island is what led to his most famous book, entitled My Family and Other Animals. This is an autobiographical novel, and it describes Durrell's childhood on the island of Corfu, the various misadventures of his family, and the development of his appreciation for the natural world. Durrell wrote over 40 fiction and non-fiction books throughout his lifetime, yet never considered himself a writer. His eldest brother, Lawrence Durrell, was himself a famous writer. And Gerald Durrell once said, the subtle difference between us is that he loves writing and I don't. To me, it's simply a way to make money which enables me to do my animal work, nothing more. And yet each book is written filled with animals, adventures, and a wry humor that I find absolutely captivating. What Attenborough showed us, Durrell painted a picture of with his words. Take, for example, this description of his time in Corfu gradually the magic of the island settled over us as gently and clingingly as pollen each day had a tranquility a timelessness about it so that you wished it would never end but then the dark skin of the night would peel off and there would be a fresh day waiting for us glossy and colorful as a child's transfer and with the same tinge of unreality how could you not fall in love with a place like that especially combined with stories about accidentally unleashing scorpions on your family, dissecting dead sea turtles on the veranda, being followed home by circus bears, and raising various assortments of animals in your bedroom. As a child, I couldn't imagine anything more amazing. And even as an adult, I'm still mildly envious. Now, in 2007, I won an award for environmental journalism, and part of the prize was to participate in a dolphin research project over in Greece. Though it wasn't in Corfu, it was pretty close and I spent two weeks wandering around the coastline, imagining Durrell's childhood amongst this landscape. Durrell said of this childhood, my childhood in Corfu shaped my life. If I had the craft of Merlin, I would give every child the gift of my childhood. For him, this childhood solidified his love of animals, which became a desire to one day own his own zoo. However, as life went on, Durrell gradually became disillusioned with the way that zoos were being run, Back then, barren concrete cages were still commonplace. The whole aim was to give the public a good view and not have the animal obscured by things like foliage or a nest or den to hide away in. Yes, many animals would perish in such conditions, but they could easily be replaced from wild populations. So where was the harm? But Daryl recognised this for the insanity that it was and by the time he founded his own zoo, the Jersey Zoological Park in 1959, he was set in the belief that zoos should primarily act as reserves and regenerators of endangered species. As a result, Jersey Zoo became the leader in the field of captive breeding, and was the first zoo in the world to house only endangered species. Durrell says, until we consider animal life to be worthy of the consideration and reverence that we bestow upon old books and pictures and historic monuments, There will always be the animal refugee living a precarious life on the edge of extermination, dependent for existence on the charity of a few human beings. But it's all very well breeding animals in zoos for the purposes of reintroduction. The additional challenge is making sure that they have somewhere to be reintroduced to. So Darrell also founded the Jersey Wildlife Preservation Trust to manage the challenges of wildlife and habitat management. This initiated large-scale conservation efforts around the world with an emphasis on training local people to care and manage for the reintroduced species and their habitats. Because it's not as simple as just dumping some animals in the wilderness and leaving them to it, you need to ensure the habitat will meet their needs, that they have other individuals of their species nearby, there is an availability of food, and there's minimal threats. And this means caring for the environment too, not just the animals. And this relies on understanding the interconnectedness of the world around us. Daryl described this as the world is as delicate and as complicated as a spider's web. If you touch one thread, you send shudders running through all the other threads. We're not just touching the web, we're tearing great holes in it. I was fortunate enough to be raised in a household that understood this and cared about the natural world. I might not have had Corfu, but I did spend my childhood with plenty of pets, chasing squirrels through Scottish woodlands, catching frogs in a nearby loch, and watching for dolphins in the North Sea. My parents were Durrell fans. They'd read all his books, even taking me to his zoo when I was a toddler. And in Durrell's words, all children should be surrounded by books and animals. I was fortunate enough to have that kind of childhood. But my first real awareness of Durrell was on my seventh birthday. I was already animal mad, so as a birthday present, I was given a one-year animal adoption package for Jersey Zoo. As part of this, I was allowed to choose one from several animals, Sleek golden lion tamarins, cuddly orangutans, colorful poison dart frogs, pondering radiated tortoises. But being a slightly awkward and frankly weird kid, I appropriately chose the weirdest animal, the I. aye I'm not sure if any of you have come across this before. It's a type of lemur and it's only found in on the island of Madagascar. And whilst lemurs are generally pretty cute and cuddly, this one was undoubtedly at the bottom of the pile. It has big Mickey Mouse ears, bulbous orange eyes, a narrow stumpy muzzle, big rodent-like teeth, and a long bushy tail. Unsurprisingly, it only comes out at night. And (laughs) if these features weren't nightmarish enough, it also has a creepily long middle finger. And it uses this for digging grubs out of holes in trees. But this middle finger, whilst excellent for grub extraction, has actually been its undoing, because local people consider it to be an evil omen. They believe that if it points its strangely narrow finger at you, you will die. And some even claim that the eye eye sneaks into people's houses and uses the f- middle finger to puncture the victim's heart. And obviously, the only solution then is to kill the eye eye before it kills you. So, of course, this is what seven year old me chooses as my adopted animal, as if I wasn't bullied enough. Oh. Aye eyes still aren't doing so well, in addition to detrimental folklore. They're also suffering at the hands of deforestation, targeting by farmers protecting their crops and poachers. It's classified as endangered on the IUCN red list, having undergone a population decline of over 50% during my lifetime. And they're still undergoing captive breeding at Durrell Zoo in Jersey, where they've successfully bred eight animals since 1990 and undertaken numerous habitat protection, research, education, and training programs on the ground in Madagascar. After adopting one at the age of seven, It was almost 10 years before I saw an aye-aye in real life. My mum's sister and I travelled to Jersey for our first real holiday when I was 16. We got a family pass for the zoo, visited every single day of our one-week stay, sometimes even twice in one day, and it was amazing. I remember looking at the enclosures Durrell had helped to design, how natural they seemed, and how there was always some amazing new animal around every corner. I was in heaven. And I know a lot of biologists who are against zoos and animals in captivity, but I think that zoos do have a vital role in animal conservation, provided they're run well. And of course, I remember walking into the dark, I.I. eye nocturnal exhibit. There were two in there, and they flitted around the enclosure like shadows, balancing along ropes, jumping across gaps, carefully investigating every nook and cranny with that creepy finger looking for something edible. And I thought, how could anyone look at this and not see something beautiful? That trip made me realize that... Um, I was more than just an animal geek. I was in it for the long haul. The following year I applied for university with no expectation of getting in, and the year after that I started my zoology degree. Since then I've had some pretty amazing adventures. I've found myself wrapped up in four layers, plus a dry suit in the pouring rain, bouncing over the waves in Scotland whilst dolphins bow-ride our vessel, and I laugh manically up at the front. I've dangled from clifftops to more closely examined seabirds on their nests. I've also fallen from cliff tops whilst counting seal pups. I've been locked in a forest and had to be rescued by gypsies. I've undertaken seal behavioural projects on unofficial nudist beaches <laughs> and not realised until I've turned up with the long lens camera and the work experience students. <laughs> I've scanned the horizons of the Mediterranean Sea willing dolphins to appear on surveys. I've watched open-mouthed as Bloom, Whale, Mum and Calf dove underneath our five-metre inflatable, the mum's tail as wide as our boat was long. And of course, since moving to Australia, I've been able to add a whole repertoire of dangerous creature encounters to my pub stories. But these many unexpected adventures have led me to where I am today. And as they're all said, I've rarely, if ever, achieved anything I wanted by tackling it in a logical fashion. Sadly, Gerald Durrell passed away in 1995, just a couple of years after I discovered him. He's a hero I'm never going to meet. His life I'll always appreciate. There's no doubt that he and Attenborough strongly influenced my life, as well as providing an avenue for family bonding. These men have continued to influence my sister and me well into our adult lives. I am, as you know, a zoologist, and she has become an award-winning wildlife filmmaker. Last year, we joined forces to create a short video about coastal dolphins and underwater noise, and working with her was one of the most satisfying moments in my career. So I started this story by telling you about my failed almost meeting with David Attenborough. I've often wondered what would have happened if it had gone differently. What would I have even said to him as I reached the head of the queue? I've wondered the same of Durrell. What would I say to these men who've unknowingly been such a big part of my life? I've tried thinking of various intelligent questions, witty comments and remarkably pertinent observations, but I think at the end of the day the only thing I can only really say is thank you. But these conversations are unlikely to happen, so instead I've bestowed on them the only honour I could. Earlier this year I completed my PhD thesis, studying the acoustic habitats of coastal dolphins and the responses to man-made noise, and just, yeah, yeah. yeah just a couple of months ago, I received the bound hardback copies. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. And if you open it, on one of the first pages, you'll find two quotes, one from Durrell and one from Attenborough. So I want to finish by sharing these with you now. Durrell says, You cannot begin to preserve any species of animal unless you preserve the habitat in which it dwells. Disturb or destroy that habitat, and you will exterminate the species as surely as if you had shot it. So conservation means that we have to preserve forest and grassland, river and lake, even the sea itself. This is vital not only for the preservation of animal life generally, but for the future existence of man himself, a point that seems to escape many people. And Darrell simply, uh, Attenborough simply observes, the world is full of wonders, but they become more wonderful, not less wonderful, when science looks at them. Thank you.